Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Green Room Podcast on the Handshake Media Network. My guest today is someone who does my job far better than I do. Mr. Mark Fennell, welcome to the podcast, sir. I don't do it better than you. No, bullshit. (laughs) Bullshit. Yeah, okay, fine, it's bullshit. Look, I, I'm not going to lie, I'm much better than you in every way, shape or form. Yeah, um, but you well, are better okay. looking than Bad I Bad start, Mark. So. Well, this is actually the first time that we're being filmed in a, in a brand new nifty studio. I know. I've got, I was actually just saying before we started, I've got like mad studio envy because currently my studio at home is like, it's a desk and a microphone. Mm. This, clearly I need to put more green screen in, in, in my life. This is the first face-to-face podcast I've done since, I want to say, mid-March. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you want to hope I don't have a disease then, don't it's, you? Yeah. I mean, you had to sign in to get here, so I'm pretty fancy. But did you, like, have you been doing all your interviews over Zoom as well? Well, it's been an interesting one. So I'm working on a few things at the moment. Um, one of the things I'm doing is I'm filling in hosting Insight on SBS. And the last couple of months has basically been me standing in a big-ass studio talking to people on a glorified Zoom setup. And it's... um. It's been hard. Like I think, you know, there there is a lot you get from being with a person mm. that you re- you don't really realise until it's gone. Um, and I've always done sort of remote interviews in Radioland, but something about people's eyeline and the way they look and, mm. and how they feel. I mean, there are times when it actually kind of works because, in effect, they're barrelling down the camera and if you're asking them, you know, something hugely emotional, there's something quite powerful about being able to look smack bang in their eyes. But, um, no, I, I realised I just got out of studio now. It's a shoot where we had a whole bunch of people in studio socially distanced mm. and I forgot how different it feels and, and just the energy of people in a room. I miss it. I miss it in so many ways. The international Zooms always suck as well because there's that delay. Oh, my so God. So you'll make a joke and they'll be staring at the camera and then you hear this, ha-ha. It's like the eight like seconds. Four of, seconds later. Yeah, it's like the eight <laughs> seconds of, did I not make a shit Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, dude, thank you for coming on because there really is – no particular agenda here. I'm, <laughs> I'm just a fan of what you do. Apparently, you're a fan of what I do. I allegedly, um, so it's I allegedly, said, I said it. It's I'm a fan of you. Yeah, but you say things. You're you're a presenter. <laughs> you're good at this. But um, yeah, man, it's it's good to have you on. I know we don't really have any set script here, other than Nut Jobs has been out for about a month now. Um, if you haven't seen the trailer for it, I don't. I've listened to a couple of episodes. I don't want to ruin it for anyone. So why don't you explain what it's about without? I'm spoiling uh, it. So I uh, I did a series for Audible, a podcast series about the race to read the world's hottest chili last year, which um, was a very strange experience. And then one of the producers, when we were finishing it off, he said, um, hey, have you heard that there was a $10 million heist of nuts in the state of California? And I was like, well, <laughs> that's weird. Mm. And I do this thing when I'm working on uh, stories or documentaries or podcasts, I get quite obsessive and I started emailing all these people and it became pretty clear that this was actually this incredibly complicated heist where you had um, members of the mob and you had truck drivers who were partaking in a heist and sometimes without even realising it there was hacking and identity theft and somehow I convinced Audible to let me go and spend a couple of weeks in California just driving up and down the highways talking to farmers and drivers and criminals and mobsters and uh, it ended up being, I mean, like, in a person whose job is already pretty strange, definitely one of the strangest things I've ever done. But it's also, I mean, it's also really a series about where our food comes from. Because in order to actually understand how this crime happened, and it was millions of dollars of, of, of nuts that were stolen, you sort of have to understand what the processes are that are involved in making your food. And when you start digging into that, it's sometimes that picture's not really pretty. And I think that affects whether you live in Australia or the US or the UK or anywhere – 
when you start asking questions about where your food comes from, you have to kind of reckon with a bunch of ethical stuff that you sometimes, it's really easy for us to forget. You, know, you open up your fridge, you open up your pantry, it's like, man, it's just there, I'm, I'm, I'm going to eat mm. it. But when you have to really look at where that stuff comes from and whose lives it affects, you have to sort of reckon with a, a lot of big questions and that's a big part of the, the series as well. How many calls or emails does it take to go, okay, there's actually something here? Because someone like, did you hear that story about the nuts? <laughs> Mark, look into the nuts. Like, I get a lot of messages now because um, now I've become like the weird food crime guy. <laughs> um, first chilies, now nuts. Um, for me, it comes down to, and I'm working on a, a new thing at the moment that uh, that will uh, come out later in the year and also a, a, a weird crime TV thing. And it, it's taken me a while to work out what I think works. And I think you need a crime that when you describe it in one line, you go, sorry, what? Like I'm looking for the sorry what? Mm. And then the next question you ask are characters because characters – when you can work out who the people are that you're talking to, suddenly ideas about themes come out because themes always come from the people that you meet. Uh, and then there's one thing I'm, I'm learning to get better at is I know how to draw people in generally with, with stuff. I'm working about how to make sure that when a series ends, you leave them with something that feels like, huh, yeah, wow, I didn't expect it would go yeah. there. And so I guess as I've moved into making sort of documentaries and long-form sort of podcast stuff, either for the ABC or SBS or Audible or whoever, it's been a lesson about, all right, you, if you can pull people in, that's great, but what, where are you spitting – how are you spitting them out at the end? Mm. And are they going to feel like their lives were changed by the better, by the yeah. thing that you put out in the world? And I think that's one of the big question marks whenever you make something – like if I'm asking for, in your case, four hours of your life with nut jobs. I want to make sure that by the end of it you don't feel cheated. Yeah, sure. And, and I guess that's a learning experience when you're making stuff like that. Mm. You mentioned that before. That One of the the reasons that I, I love your work so much is that you're one of the few presenters, and that's not a shot at others, just different styles. But you're screw, one of those, screw those guys. Yeah, screw all of them. You're one of, <laughs> no, you're one of those presenters that can ask a question but make it connect in a conversation. Not just like if you sat down and said, hi, Mark, tell me about nut jobs. You tell me about nut jobs. Great. And tell me about the feed. <laughs> like it's just a set style. You seem to have this conversation. And a good example of that is I was watching recently your – sorry, Zig, he's telling me stop banging on the desk. <laughs> um, your interview with Liam Gallagher. Oh, yeah. Who's obviously already quite the quirky man. <laughs> yeah. And you lead with what's the stupidest question you've ever been asked. Yeah, it's funny. With that interview, that was actually the third question I asked because um, I – and I, I, when I'm re-editing, when I'm editing, because I edit most of the interviews I've ever done for the feed, and um, and even oh, wow. though it's not like we don't have editors, we definitely do. It's just I'm a weird obsessive dude. And Liam, I'd interviewed Noel many years ago, and I actually really enjoyed talking to Noel because Noel is serious uh, t and takes himself serious, sir, which is not English, but mm. let's imagine that it is. But also, like. Um, Near, Noel sort of plays the media a bit more. Like he sort of knows when he's chucking something out that's going to get attention. Liam is just has – how much can I swear on this show? A lot. Liam has so few fucks left to give. And yeah. there's something incredibly exciting about talking to a person like that. So when you can give – when you like there's very few people that you can launch into what's the dumbest question you've been asked and get a genuinely good answer because mm. most people are like – particularly with movie stars and musicians, it's always like what attracted you to the role or something something like that. I, I think he, I knew he had a really short fuse and I, I guess I was trying to get to what makes him annoyed because it seems like an enormous number of things <laughs> get him annoyed. But honestly, like what was the most thing that got him annoyed? 
And he just went straight. And <laughs> that was the other thing. Like they, before we'd done that interview, the, 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 the record label were all like, I think they were unsure whether to give an instruction about whether to talk about Oasis or not. Mm. And I know the record label is always very careful, you know, whether to not feel like they're shaping an interview too much. And they're like, look, we've been getting different reactions to the Oasis question. And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave. I'll, I'll, if it comes up, it comes up. And as it turns out, when you ask Liam Gallagher, what's the dumbest <laughs> question you've been asked? His first answer is, yeah. when is Oasis going to get back together? And suddenly he's opened the door yeah. and you can do what you want with it because it's him that's opened the door. And sometimes that's where research comes in. And for me, it's like if I can find an auth- – if there's something that I know they have an opinion on but the label or the movie studio is a bit sus on, let them open the door. Mm. Find a way to get them to it or, or follow them down a path somewhere else. I think it's a lot about like – navigating and reading their cues about and where to go somewhere that also like just somewhere that makes them excited. So do you, um, I don't want to steal your secrets no, here, but means. like, do you go into an interview with 14 questions behind you? No. So what I do, I have a weird way of working. Cause it's funny. Like I started doing junket interviews for channel 10. Uh, I used to work on their like morning shows and they yeah. would send me a list of questions and I'd go do them and I'd come out and be like, well, that was boring and that's fine because it was the job and, it, and and they always cut it up well for them but when it came to doing it for me for the feed you know which is my own show and so I, I sort of thought well rather than start with questions start with answers so I w- when I would research people I would look for basically what are the stories I want them to tell what are the the the, the, the half finished story that I read in an article that I would like to know more about mm. so I'd start with the end product. Like what's the end product I want to hear and then reverse. And then that gives you the elasticity in the conversation to step back and go, well, what are the sort of questions that will get me there? What are the sort of questions that will get me to a place where that person's comfortable to share that thing? Mm. Um, so it was always helpful. And, and and then you've got a bit, then that conversation with them becomes a bit more fun because it's, it, it's uh, you got to be creative in the space to kind to find the questions to get you to where you want to go, and I the, one of the things I like most actually, you know, it's funny over the years like a lot of my friends are journo's and I think they tend to look down on interviewing celebrities, and I don't see so. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> that's true, but I but I love interviewing people in the public eye because I think it's a really you're interviewing somebody that's had a really unique experience. Mm. And also you're interviewing somebody that has been interviewed a gazillion times before. Yeah. And the onus is on you to create something, create an environment that makes them excited. And I love that. Like, And often you have to do it with really limited time. Mm. And so I, I enjoy all of the strictures that go around with it and being able to see if you – the thing that makes me ner- – like when I start interviews, the things that make me nervous aren't I'm meeting – said famous person it's like can i get something genuinely interesting can i get a reaction yeah yeah, yeah. like something that's going to make them d- say something or do something that they're going to enjoy the audience is going to enjoy and the um that they hopefully people are going to watch and go i've never seen that before mm. um and so that's the that's like the job like that's the challenge of doing that kind of celebrity interview. yeah because unfortunately for me i started watching your work after i got into community radio <laughs> and my first interview and you probably would have been at this junket doing the the real interviews. Uh, remember when Rupert Sanders, Kristen Stewart, and Chris Hemsworth were here for Snow White? Yes, that's I did that for Channel Ten. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my first filmed interview, and of course, because I'm on community radio, they only gave me Rupert Sanders. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, so when you were having an affair, well, no, this, <laughs> this is the fucked up part. So the I got the interview, and I remember I wrote down like ten questions. Yeah. And I knew that I memorized them. I knew them back to back. But the shit part, I remember walking out of the interview, and I don't remember a second of it. No. Because I think I walked in, and it's a little daunting. Like similar to this setup right now, you go in. The person is there waiting for you. Yeah. There's lights. There's cameramen. I got like he Your could have time t- starts from the moment you walk in the door. He he could have told me anything. He could have told me Tupac's not really dead, and I was just like, "Yep." So Kristen Stewart's someone. That's fun, isn't it? Like I didn't remember <laughs> a thing. I no, but I mean, my first experience of junkets was exactly like that, and I remember. Yeah, I I know that experience very well because when I first started doing them it was literally that experience Mm. and um it I think it's worth noting that those environments when you walk into them I personally believe they are designed to create a boring conversation you've got Mm. the film you know you've got the poster over your shoulder you've got a whole bunch of people in the room who you don't know and they don't know you um, there's no trust in that room when you really think about it because you're walking in as a stranger you're plonking down you have no power there are those times where you get a couple, maybe a minute or two while they're setting up to say yeah, hi. Yeah, but, but they, there are other times where you sit down and it's like, action. Yeah, and it's they are inherently daunting. And I, be, I personally think they're that way by design. They're mm. designed to make sure that you know your place and you only ask things that are on message for the film. Um, and I just think it takes a bit of time to overcome that and go, well, I'm here to try and – I'm here to do a job. It's to be a proxy for the audience and can I find something and create something that both the talent and the audience are going to find engaging. Mm. And it took me – I think it was, a big, it was a big learning experience starting off doing those sorts of interviews because I, I came up through community radio through FBI yep. in Sydney and I remember just like starting to do those sorts of interviews just being like, why do they feel shit? <laughs> and they feel shit because I was shit. Yeah. Um, uh, and so th- I think it's been a process of like feeling comfortable in the space and taking control of the space a little bit. Mm. Not to like not in a dick swinging way, but just in a if you bring something and a, a question or an area that that talent has never wanted to has never talked about before or or has wanted to talk about and has never had the opportunity to talk about, you get something amazing. Mm. Like they they pick up on it, and when they pick up that you're not an idiot. Um, or at the very least, you're doing a good impression of an oddity. <laughs> when when did that click for you? Because for me, I mean, fortunately for me, it was that Rupert Sanders interview. I walked out and I looked at the footage and I'm like, I didn't listen to a fucking word he said. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, that's actually a really good question. When did it tick over? Early on in the feed, because initially in the feed we did um, we did junket interviews with the whole junket setup, and I. I, I remember saying to the EP at the time, like, if you treat this like filler, filler is what it will become. And we had an opportunity. Actually, this is a weird one. We had, I wanted to interview George Takei, who was the guy that played Sulu in the original Star Trek. Sure. And they were like, nah, I don't really want to pay. And there was not going to be a junket for it. And they were like, nah, I don't really want to pay for a crew to go shoot that. Yep. And I was like, here's the thing. <laughs> I went through all of the ratings for the show and I picked out all of the minute by minutes and I'm like, this is the spike when we do this interview. This is the spike when we do this interview. This is content that resonates. You should pay for a crew for this one day. Uh, and he did. And it was the first time, it was one of the first times we sort of didn't, we, we had an interview set up and we sort of owned the room a little bit. 
And the stuff, and he has had an amazing life. Uh, he was sent to like Japanese internment camp and during World War II as a child. Mm. He you know, has obviously came out as a gay man after many years of being on this, you know, weirdly iconic TV show. There was good material, like good material for that life. And then when it came out and we edited it together and it did like, back before Facebook started screwing everybody with the algorithm, it did gazillion numbers. I was like, see, mm. this is worth investing in. And from that point, it became very easy to go, you know, w- there's an interview here, let's let's spend the money. And it's like if you treat it like filler, filler is what it become. If you treat it like something as special as an investigation, it will become as special as that too. Mm. And I think it was a mindset thing more than anything. Um, and then it became just this protracted process of negotiating with people like this tiny TV show can do interviews that are really good and mm. you should give Tom Cruise to Mark for half an hour and see what happens. Yeah, see, I was going to ask about Tom next because, again, what, what was that, 2016, 17? 16, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I, I did the red carpet with Tom. Yeah. So I didn't get the full junket experience, but I remember I was walking down the line and I got a very robotic sense and he was walking down the line smiling and someone in the crowd just took their phone out and took a photo and he just – Made eye contact, like I don't know how he knew, like I had their phone out. Made eye contact, and just his eyes lit up. He's like, "Hey!" Like, and he He's knew. So good. At and he comes over to me, and straight off the bat, he goes, "What'd you think?" And I mean, I don't know what you thought. I hate it. I thought it was the wor- one of the worst movies I've ever seen. This is the Mummy, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's terrible, fucking terrible. But of course, you know, it's that time. I was like, I loved it. And then he puts his hand. I can't do it social distancing. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, "Yes, all right." And he seemed genuinely wrapped that yeah. I like this movie. He. Did not seem human to me. No. So my question is, how, did you, how long did you actually get to spend with him? Uh, Tell me about that entire experience yeah, when no, you walk it's, in. It's definitely the, the experience I get of the, like celebrity sort of stuff. It's definitely the thing I get asked about the most because it was um, it was unusual, you know. Like So he came out to Australia to prom- run walk the red carpet of The Mummy, but Universal had a movie coming out later in the year starring him called American Maid. And... I don't know why they didn't give him to the project or somebody else like that, but they they <laughs> came to me and, and they were pretty upfront about it. They were like, look, um, if we – because I'd done a bunch of interviews with them for other talent and they said, if we bring you Tom Cruise – and they were really smart about it. They said, do you think you could get a good interview with Tom Cruise if we don't talk about Scientology? Which is a perfectly fine way to pitch an interview to me because it's like, let's be upfront about what, what – like if there are hard things that you don't think we talk about – Let's know them, mm. like, and it was a pretty, it was a pretty like frank, like okay. If you can't do that, do you reckon you could still get something interesting out of it? And I took a day to kind of go. Well, the guy's been famous since he was eighteen, um, which is, and he's been in some of the most iconic movies ever made. Let's give it a shot. Mm. Let's see what it is. And what surprised me, and I watched hours and hours and hours of interviews with him. And I, what surprised me about him actually, he's obviously he's warm and charming, but. There's no entourage. Like, so we had a room and he walks in, I think his PA sits in the corner and there's no one else, which is strange for those kinds of people. Come to think of that red carpet, like Russell Crowe had like a little bodyguard and a PA and I think it was just Tom with maybe one of the Universal publishers. Yeah, and it's just, I realised, it took me a second to realise that, and and nobody wrapped up the interview. Like, he just kept talking. And they were like, you've got 15 minutes. And then I was looking at the clock, I was like, this is 35 minutes. (laughs) And I realised, like, Tom Cruise is the executive producer of whatever room he's in. He will keep talking until he doesn't want to talk and then he'll leave. Which was, uh, you know, fine. So did he wrap this up? Yeah. Oh, actually, I wrapped it up because I'm like, I've got all I need. Um, But actually what was telling about it, though, was um, I actually, it's still one of the more... It's still one of the interviews I struggled most with because 
super charming, super friendly, but n- not very good at self-analyzing. So a big part of what you do in these interviews is like you're trying to craft a story through conversation, right? So you're trying to like tell the story of like beginning, middle, mm. and where we're up to now. So you can make it feel like it's got some sort of setup payoff and some conclusion. It's not just like a bunch of backing and forthing. Yeah. And so, you know, I knew his life story. and But in order to get that kind of interview, you need people to kind of reflect on their turning points. So, you know, when your mother was a drama teacher, he's like, yeah, 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 but I, but I was born with this. It's like... Okay. Okay. Because he, he couldn't self – in order to tell a story like that, you need somebody who can kind of navigate a turning point. Yeah. He actually doesn't see the world that way. He has always been thus and nothing has changed. It's actually very hard to get somebody to tell their life story if they can't perceive any changes in their life story. Did you feel that he was on the second you walked in? Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Like there's no – like – yeah, I'm not. I'm under no illusions about whether or not I cracked the veneer of Tom Cruise. I did not. <laughs> but actually, what I did, like, and I remember like being 10, 15 minutes into this interview, and it was very surreal. Like the whole thing was very strange. And I've interviewed, you know, like lots of people, and I just still remember having this out of body experiences, going like, why do I feel like this isn't quite working? And I pivoted to actually asking him about very specific movies mm. because I realised that. Um, he kept on saying, I love movies, I love movies, I love movies. He must have said it 50 th- times in the first five minutes. So I ended up just asking about some very specific movies that I know he was v- had a really strong hand in because he's, he's very active as a producer. Mm. And that somehow changed the whole interview because suddenly when he talked about individual movies he'd worked on, his face sort of lit up in a way that felt a bit more genuine. And he's like, I love that because of this, but I changed this because of this. And I did that because it didn't make sense to me. And, and I really – and all of it sort of started to come alive a little bit. And I was like, oh, you are only capable of seeing yourself through the work that you've done. Mm. That's fine. Um, And it wasn't even like, um, it wasn't even like one of those things where like, you know, sometimes artists only ever want to talk about the work. It wasn't like that. I think he literally lives to do what he does. And it wasn't like I was asking a bunch of like, hey, what the fuck went on with your marriage? It wasn't, I wasn't even doing that sort of stuff. It was more just asking about what makes him tick and, and that kind of stuff. If he could talk to, pr- to to practical things he did and, like, what, you know, things that he'd done in his work, suddenly it was a whole different interview. And that's ended up – that's – if you ever watch it, that's why we ended up subtitling it Tom Cruise, The Movies That Made Me because yeah. it was the only prism through which you could get a, a narrative out Yeah. Of and so – that's how that sort of it ended up playing. Well, out. you were happy with that interview, though. I'm happy with the final piece. I don't think um, there've been other interviews I've done where I felt like I felt like I saw something and they saw something that they didn't see before. Like Al Gore, um, we had a really interesting moment talking about nearly losing his son. Mark Ruffalo nearly died, and we had a conversation mm. about that. Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> it's one of the strangest she, ones. She's incredible. Yeah, because yeah. I, I think I'd ask her what she was most proud of and she's like, really? You really want to know? I'm like, yes. And he's like, getting clean. And then suddenly we were in talking about addiction and I'm like, okay. Did you like have that on like a the metaphorical palm card? Like, No. Well, I knew about you it. You knew about it, right? I knew about it, but sometimes it's bad to go into interviews with people like that and feel like it's all hanging off one idea. Like- I think it's useful to have a plethora of, of areas that you think will work because if you go into an interview and you're like, I desperately need them to talk about getting clean in rehab and it doesn't come up, you will feel like it's a failure. So it's a bit about being elastic in the moment going like, there's about 14 different things we can do with this conversation. I know them. I know them inside and out. I know mm. what the turning points are. Which, And I know that at least five of these things, if I get four or five of them, 
there's a, there's a piece there that'll work. Mm. Um, I think like going in an interview like I have to get them to talk about blah is setting yourself up mm. for like emotional failure because it's a pretty good chance that blah's I, you know, for one. And what re- if they react poorly to that first point, and you've got seven more points on that first point? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you're you're also insulating against your own sort of like emotional journey. I hate mm. that fucking term, but <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. Like, I think you're you're managing around that a little bit. And so, I knew she talked extensively about um, about uh, her various problems with addiction. I wasn't going. It rarely works well to go in with like, let's talk about addiction. It mm. really works well. I think if they open the door, it means that they've they trust you and the conversation enough to 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 talk about it. And it's always a bit of like it's always a bit of a dance, I think. Um, but as much as possible, I find like creating a space where people feel comfortable to share is is really where the, the job is. And so, you know, easing people in usually results in them sharing stuff they sometimes don't expect or or don't want. I think the interview I did an interview with Tarantino a couple of years ago. I think he was the only time I've walked into a room going, "Is he going to make me cry?" Because <laughs> I was terrified that I'm going to ask him something, and he'll just he kicks off. Yeah, yeah, he it does. doesn't take much for that guy to, to do it. And luckily. I didn't. <laughs> I think Tarantino gets a bad rap for that sort of stuff. Like I think people, I think a lot of journos treat, because I really, I mean, I must say I really enjoyed talking to Tarantino. It's actually one of my favourite conversations. Yeah. And, and I think what, and I can't pretend like I was an expert in this before we did it, but I think um, I think journos treat him as a as an enemy combatant sometimes. It's like the, the famous one is a Channel 4 interview that he did with Krishnan Guramurthy where, Christian Gurumurthy, who's a wonderful journalist, sort of went him a bit on the um, the violence in his films, and Is that I think Django Unchained. Yes, yeah, yeah I yeah. think so. And I think the question was totally reasonable, by the way. But I think there's a way. I think sometimes journos ask questions to ask questions as opposed to get answers, and that's fine. Like that's you know that's accountability. Wait, 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 wait. Example, what do you mean? Um, so sometimes they ask a question because they're in love with a question and they've not right. really given any consideration for what the answer is going to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's necessary, you know, for particularly for politicians. You know, sometimes a question needs to be asked um, and it's up to them to decide how they answer it. When you're in the business of profile interviewing and where you actually want that person to open up, then I think you need to th- start with the answer you want and, and reverse engineer from there. And I think what happened there was you had a person who was only interested in the question and another person um, who – so Christian was only interested in asking his question and uh, Tarantino was an empowered enough interviewee that he didn't have to buy into that premise and mm. there's the clash. I don't necessarily think either of them did anything wrong in that exchange. I think it was reasonable but I think – my mentality out of talking to somebody like that is, okay, well, what do I actually want out of this? Mm. If I want sparks and fireworks, that's fine. Like I don't need to be liked that much that I can make people uncomfortable. That's fine. But if I actually want him to explain his actual thoughts on why there's violence in there, there's a different path that we can go to to get that answer. It's just deciding whether you're more interested in the question or whether you're more interested in the answer. Was this the same guy that did the Downey Jr. interview yes. and connected the yes. your issues with your dad to being Iron Man? Yeah, that was just yeah. I didn't <laughs> I didn't get that at all. No, and I actually think one of the it's actually one of the things that shits me about that kind of interviewing. It's like because journo's get told you have to ask questions about the film that you find them doing these like elaborate, <laughs> like 
linguistic gymnastics. He's a man who gets dressed up in a suit. Why? How is that about daddy issues? Like, yes. He plays a billionaire. Yes, and, <laughs> but you can see them like in the film, you do this and it, does that have a connection to this <laughs> personal thing that I actually just want to know? Yeah. And I think the mistake is to do it all in one question actually. Like if you're going to like do like a, a, a chunky way of doing that is like, there's this thing in there about, you know, daddy issues. Did that, like, did that pop out to you in the script? Yeah, I instantly sighed and I recognised it instantly. And, I, you know, for me, I, and that that's how they usually get there. You can get mm. them to do that. It's like just don't carry them the whole way. Like people know when they're being led down the garden path. Mm. Um, and if, if they take it and take the idea further, you can build on that idea. But the mistake is to, because you've got limited time, you're like, I'm going to get the whole idea from the plot straight through <laughs> to the <laughs> emotional trauma yeah. in, in 14 words. And it's like, fuck, dude, just like, link, like don't. Mm. You wouldn't do that to a friend at a pub, don't do an interview. Yeah. So yeah, I, mean, I think it was, was it like a, a I forget where I read it, it was a while ago, and the, the Brendan Fraser interview. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> was, that, was that really as bad as what everyone made it out to be? Uh, I remember, I think I saw like a, a quick clip. I'm like, I, I mean, mm. I think it was awkward for seven seconds. I don't think it was like a... Yeah. I mean, no, you tell me, was it once the cameras went off, did Brendan tell you to fuck yourself? No, he didn't. He wasn't. He didn't tell me to fuck myself. Brendan Fraser, of course, from The Mummy. <laughs> yeah. For that, that George of the Jungle. <laughs> that franchise you remember so well. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I, I think news.com.au asked me a couple of years ago, what was, like, what was my worst interview? And I, it's always been that Brendan Fraser interview. Because oh, I think. Was that I, just because it was just something that happened that was awkward? I think was it's it really, it went to shit. No, it's because I fucked it up. Like that—that's that's the like the genuine reason. Like I totally fucked it up. I was working for JTV, so I was at Triple J. I was working for JTV, and they had booked this interview with him. And I was like, "Why are we interviewing Brendan Fraser?" And they're like, "Because we can." I'm like, "Cool." <laughs> um, and I went off and did this research. I found that they had taken out kidnapping insurance on him on the first Mummy movie, and I thought it would be fun if we did the thing where like. Do you know how much you're worth as a kidnap victim? Like, what's the insurance? And he'd be like, no, I don't know. And I thought I'd give him this newspaper and he'd hold it under his chin and look down the barrel of the camera and say, hey, my name's Brendan Fraser <laughs> and I've been kidnapped by JTV. And I'm like, great promo, yeah. clever. I'm so smart. I'm a fucking idiot. Um, <laughs> and firstly, I stick the landing. So I fucked the setup of the joke. Yeah. So that that's on me. Secondly, um, it was a really important lesson that people are not, just because they're actors doesn't mean they're puppets. Sure. And people don't want to be made. A, like if you want somebody to do a gag, you need to bring them along on that journey or you need to talk about them further or you need to get it cleared or all that kind of stuff. It was just, it just really like what the look on his face was like, no man, I'm not going to do that. Like, but was this, was this a fun fact that you had found that no one had discussed? No. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. It is literally. So it was, it was probably, he was also shocked that you knew this at all. Yes. And this. Where the fuck do you find that fun fact? Uh, how was it like in the producer's credits? Like, yeah, kidnapping insurance. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know where I found it. I mean, this is like this is what I do. I get Wikipedia. Yeah, <laughs> probably started at a Wikipedia page and then went somewhere else. <laughs> but I like. I think it. Yeah, I, I think it was an important lesson for me in that you cannot treat people like puppets. They are human beings first. And you need to deal with them as human beings first. And then if there's something fun that can be done, they need to feel like they have buy-in. Um, and I think, you know, th that's, that whole setup sometimes makes people feel like they're less than human like, mm. or, or, or more than human, but they're not. They're still just people mm. that are richer and often better looking than us. Mm. But you Debatable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, definitely richer though. <laughs> um, and I think just 
Yeah, I, I, my, my, the reason I felt bad about it was, was that I felt like I had actually, in doing that, and he probably wasn't aware of it, I felt like I had dehumanised him by mm. trying to treat him like a puppet. And I just made a decision that I wasn't going to do that again. And, and it, you know, like you... Was it, but was it like once you rap, thanks, you're waiting oh, for the cards to be made, was it awkward or was it just very... Just, it was a gag didn't land, move on. Yeah, it was a gag that didn't move. I, I pivoted really quickly. I was like, I'm not doing that. And he threw the newspaper back at me and I'm like, so let's talk about adventure movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if, if I haven't gone back and watched the footage because it – and I did say to them, like, can we please cut that bit out? Please. And they're like, no, it was great. I'm like, no, it was, was it bad. great though? I don't think it was great. Yeah. Like I, looking back on it now and be like, it's fine. It's good to talk about because I take it as a learning experience. But I think – it wasn't great. I wouldn't have put it in the cart. But, you know, but you live like it's in, in weird ways, it's kind of like doing like stand-up or something, right? Like you have to fuck up to know what not to do next time. Totally. And I'm a big believer in just like owning – like one of the side effects of my career is that when you fuck up often it does happen in public. Mm. And sometimes you can edit it, around, edit it away and pretend like it never happened and you can just be like, I learnt that. We'll do that again. But sometimes you fuck up in public and that's – like I've been in – I've been in some form of public life starting from like the movie show when I was 19 mm. since I was a teenager. Like there's going to be, there are things out there that I look at and go, oh my God, that was bad. Mm. And I think if you are going to be fuck up in public, it's good to be equally public about acknowledging that you fucked up yeah. and learning from it and, and, and being equally upfront about the lessons that you learnt from it. And I hopefully in the hopefully few times I fucked up, in my many years on TV and radio, that there is, for every fuck up, there's at least a public ownership yeah. of that. Because that don't treat them like puppet metaphor is so true because I we had Harry Shearer on this podcast. Yeah. He was here right before the lockdown. I think he was here for <laughs> the right. Port Ferry Folk Festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he came on the podcast and I, like, of course, Simpsons, Mr. Yeah. Burns. I mean, he must be so used to it though. Yeah, but, like, I kind of promised myself, do not talk about this for as long as possible because... Oh, that's interesting. So when he came in, and like he was, he was very sweet. And Harry's a big fan of the show. No, he's not. Um, when he came in, I said like, you know, I'll t I'll get to it at some point, but do not just lead with like, can you do Ned Flanders' voice? Yeah. So it was like a solid 30, 40 minute podcast, and I don't think I we mentioned The Simpsons till like the twenty twenty fifth minute, mm. and he opened up very well once we got to that. But I guarantee you. If I started with, thanks for coming on, Harry. Yeah. Um, Mr. Burns is a fun character. He would have just scolded me and that interview would have been done in four minutes. And this is also where I'm quite sympathetic for people that work in live TV and live radio, where you actually don't have the benefit mm. of that. Um, I think in those instances, generally speaking, the talent are either pre-recorded to get them to that place or they are clued in early that they sort of have to do it at this pace. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, that is one of the great advantages of doing this kind of broadcasting. It's like you have the time to get people comfortable and they share stuff that you don't necessarily expect or, or they that you didn't you couldn't predict from the outset. And I think it's good interviewing in large part comes down to time. Either time before the interview to do the research and find something or time in the interview to find something in the space that, that you wouldn't have otherwise arrived at if you had to go bang, 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 thank you, we're out. Mm. You know? So I think time is really the, the, the key component. I think the only time I've genuinely be jealous of you and just like not happy for your success <laughs> is when you did the South Park interview. Ah, oh, that was Like weird. getting a flight to LA and mm. being toured through that office and meeting Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And Bill Hader was there. 
We didn't put him on camera. Phil Hader was just hanging oh, because he wrote for a season, yeah, didn't he? He was just hanging around, and I was, I was like, I was like, do you want to be on camera? He's like, no, 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 I'm cool. Okay, so th- I promise this will, be, this will be like the last. <laughs> no, you can tell me about your interview that no, I grill no, no, you about, I'm, I'm, but I'm I need to know how this happened and walk me through going through those offices and meeting these people. So they were bringing, uh, they're bringing their musical um, Mormon. Yeah, they'll bring the Book of Mormon to Australia, and they because they did press in Melbourne, right? But then they didn't. Yeah. So this was before about a year out. They um, the publicity company called and said, "Hey, you're the network that airs South Park." <laughs> I think that was their whole <laughs> rationale. I think they'd, they'd seen me interview lots of other famous people and then plus we were the network that ate South Sure. Park. And they're like, if we flew you to LA. and if- oh, So this was on Comedy Central's Dime? It was on, no, it was on like their private, it was on like the, the um, yeah, it, w- it wasn't our Dime, that's for sure. Um, it was on, I think the theatre company's Dime. Right. I don't remember. Okay, sure. <laughs> this sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> so they're like, if you do this, how long could you give this on air? And I remember being like, well, just an interview I reckon would give, you know, six or seven minutes. And then they're like, what if you like, we gave you like a tour of the studios where they make South Park and you could kind of see how they do it. I'm like, we could definitely give longer. Wait, context. <laughs> are you a fan of South Park? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Like, and and because and I, I was like, I'm 35. I was raised on like it is peak my mm, teenage yeah. years, right? So uh, they were like, well, but yeah, you've but you've also got to talk about Mormon. I'm like, God, to talk about Mormon. I want <laughs> yeah, to talk yeah, about Mormon. Of course, I love Mormon. Yeah. That, like I've I was grown <laughs> concurrent to my my years of watching South Park. I was also raised on like Disney movies. So the idea of musical plus <laughs> South Park overlapping was you know well, not Matt and Trey, not so much South Park overlapping is amazing to me. For those who don't know, when he says he loves Mormon, it's a musical called The Book of Mormon. Uh, yeah, I should have clarified that. <laughs> fair, fair call, fair call. Um, and so we flew over there. Um, and they are so chill mm. about you doing anything. Like we just had a run of the place for uh, two days and we could just film anything. Although afterwards they, we, we filmed them because at the time they were building their video game. So they had all right. this animation happening. They were doing animation. They sort of took us in the room. And Is it, it a genuine building or just like two levels of a building? No, it's, it's like... A, from the outside, a slightly shitty-looking building in wow. re, in industrial LA that is underneath, like next to a, a freeway. It is not glamorous at all. Yeah, you walk inside and then there's like a, a little bit of sort of cavernous vibe about it, and there's bits and pieces of uh, South Park memorabilia hanging from the walls. That's like your only real clue what's going on there. And the offices are nice, but it's it's very sort of industrial vibe. Um, and they do everything in-house. Like, that's the deal with them. They go – they have – famously, they have six days to make an episode yeah. from nothing to airing. And they – Which seems like a train – like a disaster for a train wreck. Right? Yeah. I don't, how those two don't have ulcers, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's mental. But they um, – they, they, like – they opened the door and we were just there and they were so easygoing about us being there. And to be fair, we're pretty easygoing too. And the way we shoot is like it's pretty much just me and a camo most of the time. Mm. In that case, I think we had like a, a PR person had come over from Australia and she was awesome and really chill and she totally got what we were doing and it was great. Um, and I think I brought <laughs> I brought my executive producer along because he was a massive South Park fan. They're like, I need a producer. I've never needed a producer. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but he was actually really helpful because he ran second camera and he had come up doing that sort of stuff. So we 
Um, we sort of had run of the place. They showed us, you know, how their writing wall. They went in and did a bunch of voices for us. They oh. were so keen to show off their process. And they had done a full do- – like, they didn't need to. Like, they'd done a full documentary mm. called Six Days to Wear. Like, they didn't need to show random Australian TV show how they'd make their stuff. But they were – I think they're really proud of what they've built. And they should be because it's an incredible model of an independent studio – working the way they want to work to create something that only they can make. Like, mm. I think they're enormously proud of not just the product they put out, but the process they put behind it. Um, and when it came to the, the irony of it was when we came to talking about Mormon, there actually just wasn't enough footage to cover because they really? hadn't done, you know, they hadn't gone the full Hamilton, you know, they hadn't filmed mm. the whole thing. Yeah. They'd only filmed, we had their Tony's performance. So it actually meant that it ended up being a lot more South Park than, than Mormon just for TV reasons. But we ended up doing like a full half-hour documentary out of it. Um, How long were you there for the day? I was really only a day and a half that I was there. Wow. And then, at, and you know, we, you, we're we pretty fast. We pack a lot in and it's, um, you know, so you did a, did a sit-down with the boys, ran three cameras on that. Um, then we did a walkthrough pretty much of the whole building, um, ran two cameras at all times on that. So you're sort of moving fast with a bunch of footage so you can actually do that. Um, and they sort of took us through the process. They're like, this is the writing room. This is the recording room. This is where we build the characters. This is, sorry, I have a bad habit of falling into an accident. No, I like that. I uh, like that a lot. Um, I feel like I'm there. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then they, they are so iterative with the way they work. So, um, they've got a full animatic in the system. And as a, as soon as the animatic was replaced by actual animation, the, uh, the sort of the cloud automatically updates it. So you'll be watching through an edit and it'll be like animatic shot, which is like this, a sketch, a sketch to their voice, a sketch to their voice. And then like one shot will be like complete final animation because there's some animator has just uploaded it. Mm. It's such an intro, like just from like a nerd TV standpoint, such an interesting Because they're still incredibly, I mean, obviously being so the voices, hands they're hands on, right? So hands on. Yeah. Like it's their baby. Yeah. Um, and I think they the only time they've ever missed delivery on an episode is, is actually because of a power outage. Yeah. Or at least that's the story they're sticking with. Was it, uh, was it Mel Gibson one? Possibly, yeah. Yeah. And actually the thing that – it's funny, like the thing that, that has got the most reaction I've noticed actually on Reddit of all places from that whole thing that we did was um, Matt and Trey take it really personally. Like in ways that sort of surprised me that – like when they think something's shit, they really feel it mm. quite intensely. And I think, I think it was Matt that was telling the story about um, how he just felt practically suicidal after one episode went out because he thought it was so bad. And it was the Make Love Not Warcraft episode, which was which it's actually like, which is like one of the iconic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, <laughs> and he described it, and he, I, you could see the pain on his eyes about how bad he felt about this thing he put out in the world. And of course, it ended up being probably one of the more talked about episodes of that show and it's like there is something quite compelling about talking to people that really love making what they make Mm. like you can't fake that it just the camera picks it up the microphone picks it up that passion is um it's unfakeable and they had it and it was like that's a big part of why i think that was a a good uh, a good piece because it was like they shared. I felt like I got a sense of their energy. I'm sounding very woo right now. <laughs> like I felt like I got a sense of their energy that I hadn't gotten before, and that was kind of really surprising. It's weird because like it seems what seven, 23 seasons. I think it's. <laughs> it's I mean, such an insane. It's number. crazy, and it's like they were two broke guys sleeping on lounges, writing Hallmark cards. Yeah, and then someone's like, "Hey, can you make this card a Christmas episode?" 
and to see how successful they're coming, yet they're still like that. I think mm-hmm. I saw Trey do like a, a was it a current affair interview? I think it was. He I'm did not sixty sure. minutes after sixty minutes. Yeah. yeah, and like he went to like a Mormon after party, and he's still like in that you know a ripped Billabong shirt oh, and yeah. thongs yeah. in this very formal New York mansion, and he just doesn't give a shit. Yeah, I did like when they told the. <laughs> I did like when they told me about dropping acid at the Oscars. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had heard that story before. And so well, if you like watch the footage too, their eyes. Oh, I did. Because <laughs> I, I like, uh, and I didn't know they were going to bring it up when we did the interview. So I actually watched the footage afterwards. Mm. And he told the story about getting high and wearing dresses at the Oscars. And I just, and I went back and watched all the raw footage that we had. And I was like, What? The fuck? Well, I think Matt didn't Matt say as well. Like they made a, a promise to each other, like do not reference the fact that we're wearing dresses. Yeah, just keep saying how magical the night is. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what they did. And it's just like, like because there have been so many times, especially in the PC world we're living in, like there yeah. they should have been cancelled so many times, and they just seem to. It is interesting. One, not give it? a shit, and yeah. two, it, work yeah, with it. Yeah, it is really interesting. And I and I've, I was actually talking about this with like. Jan Fran, because Jan Fran and I used to host the feed together. And mm. She was like, we were having a conversation about, is anybody uncancelable? And I remember thinking, the answer is no, but I remember thinking like, it is a bizarre how they've managed to sort of sidestep it to some extent. Mm. I don't know how, and I don't know if it's right or not or whatever, but I, like, I remember thinking like, maybe it's the, like the DNA of that show is so sort of, resistant like you you there's nothing sort of um about it that you would classify as acceptable to begin with mm. maybe that it like i don't know like I, the, the the dna of it's really interesting and i don't know I, again that's not to, like you know there's a big conversation about cancel culture which i think is too complicated because it's a monolithic term that means too too much and too little all at the same time but i do think like they occupy a really unusual space a really unique space in American popular culture. Mm. Yeah. And then they're getting older as well. Like they started this show as what? Oh, like Were they even 20 by the time South Park started? Crazy young. And I think Trey was what, just turned 50 or about to turn 50? So like yeah. they're not getting younger. Yeah, I wonder how long – I wonder if it will outlive them. I don't know. I don't think it could. Surely not. I don't know. I mean, yeah, who knows? Well, because like I, I know Seth MacFarlane isn't too heavily involved in – the production of Family Guy these days outside of doing the voices. Yeah, that's right. So and for Trey and Matt to just still be there all the like when you when you've interviewed and filmed with them, were they kind of ghosts no. after that? Or was it just like you just see him in the cafeteria? Well, I mean, I mean obviously why would they, they have a cafeteria? Uh, I think they do. Okay. Um, <laughs> um are they I mean they certainly were I, I do think they are They've engineered a, a system where they're, they're present when they need to be. Mm. So I don't think they're, like, milling around for the sake of it. Um, I think they were there because we were there, to be honest with you. Um, but, I, look, I think maybe that's the key to making that stuff work over a really long period of time. Like, anybody I know that's ever done a job for a really long time, you do engineer circumstances so that you're there for – if you want to keep doing it, you're there for what you need to be there for, but maybe you minimise on the, the stuff that once upon a time you would have – you would have done because you were in the office. Mm. Minimise on that sort of stuff. That's the first stuff to to get minimised. Did anyone tell you that Bill Hader was going to be there? No. Sorry, no. walking past in the hallway. No, the story was actually because we filmed all this over the sh- shoulder stuff of the animators, and then we're in the next day we're filming something else in LA. They called us up and went, "Hey, we just realised that a lot of the stuff you shot, we're probably not able to show you yet because we haven't announced the game yet. So can you sure. can you come back and we'll get the animators to." 
give you something else to shoot just as overlay. So like animation overlay. We're like, okay. And uh, the camera went back and <laughs> Bill Hader was just there because he was doing a day of writing. And we were like, do you want to be in this? And he's like, no, 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 I'm fine. You just shoot around me. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I, I think he left SNL and then just for some reason went and wrote for South Park for one season. Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think they're friends. Sure. So I think he just hangs around and helps. But I mean, this is the impression I got. It's funny because like a year or so after that, I interviewed Bill Hader and I, like didn't expect him. No, I mean, he didn't re- remember me at all, but I do remember thinking like, this is just you, isn't it? You're just like an incredibly, <laughs> like you just bounce around. Like yeah. this is your vibe. This works for you. I'm, I feel it. Yeah. Know? But yeah, it was a, it was a strange like general like, the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking crazy. Um, all right, man, for the last of 2020, what have you got? Uh, I am, well, I've, in I the weird world we're living in. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely got the feed and insight for the next, well, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of insight and, and the feed. Uh, I do, I've got a new podcast coming out at the end of the year for the ABC, uh, which is Another, it's another series about a weird crime mm-hmm. um, that's involving a lot of late night uh, Zoom conversations because I can't travel anywhere at the moment. Are these creepy crimes? No, they're not creepy crimes. I don't. So like, do, not, like okay, good. Yeah, I'm, I don't do. Uh, yeah, like I don't love um, violent crime. Like that's not my like unsolved murders and stuff. No, and that there are people that are better at it than me. I'm good at crimes. Like I look for crimes that tell us something about the world that we live in. Like, so, you know, in the case of It Burns or Nutjobs, those were, you know, strange crimes, but they opened up a world of like, well, in the case of It Burns, it was really about pain and how Mm. people use pain. With Nutjobs, it's about can you trust where your food comes from? And this new series is really about who gets to own history and who gets to tell the story of who we are. And that's that's what uh, what it's about. And, you know, it's... Audio is really good in the sense like it's it lets you tell bigger stories on a on a bigger canvas without like blowing out a huge amount of money mm. <laughs> that I don't have. Um, <laughs> so I think it's been nice. It's also been interesting because like both my last two podcasts were they did really well in the US, so which was surprising to me. And so now I get like lots of emails from like Mandy in Michigan saying, I really love your accent, which is Lovely, but very strange to me. You mean like there's a generic it burns email, right? Like you're not just giving out your no, no. Uh, there's a contact form on my website. Good. <laughs> and it's like, and there's been a bit of that, which is like lovely. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I get. I think because Audible uh, pushed it to those markets, it's been it's been interesting. And yeah, like uh, it's, it's it's always fascinating being an Australian in the US because I only ever go there for work. I only ever go there for a couple of weeks, and there's always like this like weird question mark of like, why are you here? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. what, why are you? Because yeah. also like, I don't look like what a lot of them think Australians look like. I've discovered. Well, you're not wearing a fucking crocodile Dundee hat. Well, it was like, I was in South Carolina and I do, I, I had this lovely conversation with a woman who was just like, she just wouldn't believe me that I was Australian. <laughs> I think it basically boiled down to the fact that I don't look like a Hemsworth brother. I'm like, I was like, oh, that's oh, what I think you look like. Good. Well, we're all I, fucked. I mean, I think it is an indication to me of perhaps um, the image of Australians that we send around the world is pretty white. 
And I think the idea of them, Australia being a multicultural country, and look, I'm not going to extrapolate the views of 200 million people (laughs) from this one woman in South Carolina, but... We have a lot of fans in South Carolina. Huge, right? It did strike me being like, (laughs) we probably need to do a better job of (laughs) demonstrating that Australians come in all shapes, sizes and colours. Yeah. And, I mean, that's that's an ongoing issue, obviously, that you can even see just living here. But I do... Remember, like, it did take me by surprise. I was like, oh, shit, like, we... you. don't have any concept that we have brown Australians. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's a problem. Mm. We should do something about that. Are you able to plan anything concrete? Like I, I remember I had Adam Hills on this mm. podcast. He had just flown back from London. Obviously he does the last leg there and he flew back to Melbourne when lockdown started. And he's been was, doing it from his he's garage like, ever since. Yeah, he's like, I'm meant to go back to London in late May. That could mm. change. Obviously he hasn't, he hasn't gone. Are you, have you been able to no. format some sort of schedule? No, I mean, look, I... My job, like the thing I love about my job is being able to go places and, and, and step into worlds I don't belong. And that's probably the thing that I have lost. But really in the grand scheme of things, what I've lost pales compared to what so many other people have lost in terms of work and health and other stuff. So I'm not, I don't want to be, I don't want to whinge about it. For me, what I've, I guess I've been lucky enough to do is sort of take ideas for either, you know, documentaries or podcasts and kind of go, well, can I refashion this to work in a different kind of way? And so I guess I've been lucky enough to do that. And to be honest with you, I have no plans beyond the end of 2020 because I, there's a bunch of ideas that I'm working on, um, for TV things and for podcast stuff and, you know, obviously I have an ongoing relationship with a few TV networks, but in terms of like concrete things, I'm sort of still feeling out what the world is going to look like after Mm. this thing. And I think that some of it, that's what it comes down to. It's like I know the sort of things I like to do and like to make, but, um, you know, there's very few, in terms of the feed, there's very few celebrities around to interview. So I'm not doing a lot of that. I'm making more sort of documentary stuff, like quirky documentaries, which um, you can do to some extent. But I also just don't know what our industry and the things that people are going to want to watch is going to look like at the end of this thing. Like we mm. know it's changing viewing behaviours. We know it's changing consumption behaviours. We know it's changing people's um, expenditure we know all that, but we, we no one really knows how that's going to shake out. Like who's really going to be fucked by this thing mm. at the end of it? And I think we know to some extent like the music industry is going to – we already know the music industry is like copped it so much worse than they deserve to. Comedy, anything anything's connected to live. My question is like, well, where are the opportunities within that? Mm. Um, and And I'm not pretending like I know the answer to that because I think there are some people that are doing creative things, but – I'm still unclear as to what we look like as people when we come out the other end of this thing because we've never seen anything like this before and I know it's going to change us, I just don't know how. I was watching, I think I was watching Conan and I was watching Conan interview, Conan's at home interviewing Will Ferrell on his laptop. Will Ferrell's talking back to his laptop. I haven't looked at the US TV ratings. Mm. I don't know if they're good or bad but that's what viewing is. Yeah. You're watching your favourite people also talk to people on their computer. So it's interesting, it's, isn't it? It's fucking like, weird to even just say out loud. It, like, uh, there's obviously the first thing of like that would never have happened two years ago or a year ago even. But the other component of it is like, if you take away the mantle of special, like, just if you just exploring like that idea of like famous people, right? Mm. If you take away the mantle of specialness, the, mm. the makeup, the nice suits, the nice outfits, the red carpet, the big productions the junket setups, if you take that away, 
how quickly do we have to re- reckon with the fact that they are basically normal people? Mm. And, um, you know, like what does that change about the concept of celebrity? Is uh, re- I'm really fascinated by mm. I've always been interested in the concept of fame and, and how it affects people personally and how it affects their personalities and then how it affects the way we relate to those people. I've always been fascinated by that. And I think um, this might be an interesting exp- – like massive experiment in the puncturing of modern celebrity culture. Mm. Something that was, I think, actually started by social media. Like when uh, famous people had Instagram accounts and you can see them post shit pictures of themselves <laughs> or like insanely like curated pictures of themselves uh, in the case of Beyonce. Like ch- how people choose to use that unmediated, relatively unmediated space has a really interesting impact on on how we perceive them. And I feel like in some ways the the great zoomification of all media mm. is a sort of like the next step in that. And I don't know what the next thing is. Like maybe they will get fucking TikToks, TikTok accounts. Um, <laughs> Lord help us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and it's a bit of a vague thought because it doesn't really go anywhere, but I'd, I'd be fascinated to see where that, that next step Have is. you seen any changes with what you what you do with the feed, with Insight? Anything that you think, let's just pretend for argument's sake, COVID is done tomorrow, we go back to normal. Is there anything like, actually this really worked well with COVID? We did a thing actually on the feed um, where we set up a phone line where we got people to call in and tell us what their experience of the pandemic was. And there's a special that's um, we're airing next week on next Tuesday, in fact, um, and which is that they're sort of we've built a whole half hour film out of their phone messages. Mm. And I think that was a really lovely example of a show, you know, largely staffed by young people being really creative with a, a ridiculous challenge of like, how can we convey the story of us, the story of how Australians are dealing with this in a way that doesn't feel like you could see on the ABC or 10 or somewhere else. What's a really uniquely us way of doing it. And so we've built this tapestry of experiences that I think is really unique. And, and some of them are poignant. Some of them are funny. Some of them are sad, but that's, sort of been the experience of it, mm. you know, like one thing I, I have noticed is like our emotions often have come a lot closer to the surface. Something about the isolation, something about the anxiety has meant that a lot of people feel just that little bit rawer. And I think that's to me very fascinating to watch play out that, that sort of that thin layer of anxiety that sits over everything. How does that shape us? And, and what are they going to be the decisions that we make over the next few years because of that? You know, mm. do we, do we become more conservative in our spending? Do we buy houses sooner? Do we, you know, I remember talking to a friend who was working um, around 9-11 and they said, you know, immediately after 9-11, everybody spent money on their houses. We had a shit ton of home renovation TV shows because people turned inwards. They became right. insular. They weren't as interested in going out in the world. They wanted to build safe havens for themselves at home. It's like I'm really curious to see what are going to be those those pivot points that that that, ha- that come from this. Have you noticed any of those patterns? I think the way we relate to family is really different. Um, I, look, I've got two kids, and so that's probably why I'm thinking about that a lot. And I had to homeschool. Dear God, no, never again. Wait, uh, by homeschool, you you're the teacher? Um, bad, kids. Like, no, bad, bad, bad teacher. Oh, right, right, yeah, right, right. No, sure. so I had to like <laughs> I was like, Max, can you please do your fucking kindergarten? Work, which is a, just was a disaster, and I was terrible at it. Um, <laughs> but I, it, you know, suddenly we had to spend a lot more time doing that sort of stuff. And then there was a period of time where they couldn't see their grandparents, and suddenly you, re- I found myself really considering like, 
what does family actually mean to me in a way that I, you know, growing up in your 20s and 30s, just did not think about it nearly mm. as much, you know. Mm. So I think family was a big thing that, you know, I, I guess I'm considering more. Sorry, that was a really inarticulate thought. I'm still no, processing. I, I mean, I have kids, <laughs> um, so that, that's a whole new perspective for me. <laughs> yeah. It's, look, it's just a, I, I'm still sort of processing it a little bit, so forgive me if I'm I'm not as articulate as I could and should be. No, that was actually really good. I mean, how, what was the, what's the running time on the Zig? <laughs> Zeke's out. I don't even know. Well, Mark, I think we'll wrap it there, dude, because I know you've come from a studio and you're tired. I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much for coming by, man. No, um, really, really appreciate it. Now, we started this conversation like on Instagram. <laughs> That's true. So it do. goes to show just text people you want to talk to and they'll write back. It's true. Tom will. Hanks hasn't written back.